Well, it's good to be with you all this evening, and whenever I hear the word Romania, certainly it kindles fond memories of my heart. My heart. I've been to Romania a couple of times. I was there last year. Uh, wonderful people, and uh, some great things happening in Romania too. So wonderful to to see that as part of the service this evening. Um, Donald mentioned too. I do work with a, a ministry called Reason Why. And I spend a lot of my time working in churches and parachurches, various places around the country and some other places too, really trying to defend the truth and reasonableness of the Christian faith. That's my passion, and I have many opportunities to do so. And it's wonderful to come and share this evening and to address the message of hope, since that certainly is very key in the times that we live today, the question of hope. If you were to pick up a newspaper Uh, You might suddenly be struck with with fear or terror today, certainly with some of the newspaper headlines related to swine flu. You might turn on the the television news and and hear about the credit crunch. You might turn on the radio and hear about some murder, some terrible thing that's happened. And certainly through the media and the culture that we live in today, fear can be something that we're familiar with. And it can well up within us. And it can have a pretty negative consequence in our lives in terms of how we respond to it. But maybe you didn't know, but I need to make you aware this evening that there is an antidote. There is an antidote to this fear that perhaps you've been exposed to. And there's a source of reassurance. One that is available to you. It's accessible. Perhaps you haven't heard about this. And if so, it's good that I get a chance to share it with you this evening. Because a group of atheists around the UK, came together and they started a a campaign and they've put posters on buses and they have the antidote to this fear that's gripping the country. And what is the antidote? What is it? Well, the slogan is, there's probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy life. There's probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy life. This is the atheist response that has been publicized and put on posters and put on buses and they've raised money for this too. So is this the key? Is this the antidote we're looking for? Is this the the source of hope that the world is looking for? Take God out of the equation and just get on with your life and enjoy your life. Believe there is no God. Well, when we dig a little bit deeper, you don't have to dig too deep. You find out that actually this runs out of steam pretty quickly. This is not the antidote. This is not the source of hope that we're looking for. And this is actually uh, commonly understood by many prominent atheists. Richard Dawkins, who wrote the book The God Delusion, very scathing of Christianity. If you have read that book or you're familiar with it, perhaps you know that it's dedicated. It was dedicated to uh, another atheist, a man called Douglas Adams. Douglas Adams and and, um, Dawkins were very close friends. And Douglas Adams, perhaps you would know him better by a book that he had written called The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. This was a fictional guidebook. It's a fictional story. It's quite humorous, but it certainly reflects Douglas Adams' philosophy that the universe is godless. And as a consequence of considering a universe where God is not part of the picture, where the universe therefore ultimately is meaningless, where the universe ultimately is irrational, One of the recurring phrases in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is, don't panic. Don't panic. It comes up again and again in Adam's writing in this book because he recognizes when you consider the universe, where God is not part of the equation, it can encourage you to panic as a consequence because it's worrying when you consider that. And Adam's was uh, not alone. 
in the last century, if you were to consider the writing of Bertrand Russell, a very prominent atheist, a man who said, you know, there is no God. And he said, basically, what is the source of our human identity? Uh, Bertrand Russell said that basically we are just the accidental outcome of a collocation of atoms. You're just the accidental outcome of a collocation of atoms. Let's get that into the school syllabus. I've got two daughters, six and five. I mean, I look forward to the day they go to primary one. Here, we're going to tell you what you are today to give you some inspiration for your life. You're the accidental outcome of a collocation of atoms. I have opportunities to go into schools, and I love going into school assemblies, particularly when I have an opportunity to say, listen, there's different ways of looking at the world. One way is a godless perspective where you are just a grown-up germ. But let me tell you a different way to look at the world based upon a Christian perspective, a a worldview based upon what the Bible has to say, that you're valuable, your life has meaning and purpose. It's a great message, great message to have in this day and age. But Bertrand Russell said, listen, this is all that you are. This is the source of your identity because he said there is no God. He also is very well known for an essay that he has written called A Free Man's Worship. And in it, Bertrand Russell said this. Only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. Douglas Adams, don't panic! Bertrand Russell, on despair, you must embrace despair because ultimately you are just the outcome of an accidental collocation of atoms. The atheist perspective where there is no God... It does not solve and resolve this fear that we have about the world that we engage on a daily basis. And so there is no hope from this perspective. Maybe some of you here, I'm sure many of you here are old enough to remember a bus campaign several years ago in the UK. They also had slogans on buses. Can anybody remember what it was? There is hope. And this caught people's imagination. This captured people's attention because hope is something that people aspire to. They want to have hope. There's something within us that that recognizes almost like we should have hope. And a hopeless scenario, it doesn't seem to fit. It doesn't seem to make sense. It doesn't resonate with something deep inside. Well, this Christian campaign said that there is hope. And it caught people's attention. And hope is the crux of the Christian message. And that's what we're going to be speaking about this evening. In this climate, there's many things that can cause us to fear, that can cause us to be anxious about situations. Sometimes fear can grip us and it can be like a knot in our stomach. But Christianity has something to say to offer hope in the climate of fear. Because it says there is hope. Where? In the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the hope For us, Jesus is the hope for the world. And that is what we're going to look at this evening. When Jesus came into the world 2,000 years ago, he brought a message of hope. A message of hope that still resounds throughout the world today. John chapter 14 is where we're going to look this evening. If you have a Bible, please feel free to turn there. We're going to be looking at that very shortly. John chapter 14. Now we're going to be looking at this book in the New Testament, and this is the fourth gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the fourth gospel. And the gospel of John, it does not carry the name of the author in the introduction, but church history has long since recognized that this is the, the Apostle John, who is the author. There's very early testimony to this in the history of the church. 
The author himself refers to himself as the one, the disciple whom Jesus loved. The person who's writing this account was an eyewitness of the life of, the Jesus, of Jesus of Nazareth. He was able to give eyewitness testimony to these things. And John was a very significant figure, certainly. John and his brother James were sons of Zebedee. They were fishermen. They worked on their father's boat. They knew Simon Peter. They were disciples of John the Baptist. But when Jesus came, they went to follow Jesus. They became his disciples. John, the latest gospel that was written, perhaps around about 90 AD, towards the end of the first century, very powerful in terms of what it has to say. In fact, some liberal scholars have looked at the Gospel of John and said it gives such a depiction of Jesus that these liberal scholars don't like it. And they said, well, listen, this is some later document. And then they found a fragment of the Gospel of John in Egypt, early second century, which pushed the original document back into the first century, back into a time when this was written, where there were people who knew and had witnessed Jesus, his life and his miracles. And so the Gospel of John is authoritative historically, but also what it says, the content is very powerful. And John is writing to an audience that is mixed. Often it's called the Gospel to the Gentiles. Uh, That's because it related to the context of who he was writing to and also some of the things that John describes. They would not have to be described if it was primarily a Jewish audience. They would understand these things. But John describes and makes these things known. And John's portrait of Jesus is very powerful very powerful. He places Jesus on an equal footing with God the Father. Jesus existed with God as God before the creation of the world. John starts out on this track from the very, very first verse in the book. And the key theme, believe, believe, believe in Jesus as Lord and God. The word believe in the Greek is used almost a hundred times. And there is this recurring theme, believe, believe, believe. Don't just hear, but actually respond. Place your trust as a basis of what John has to say, what he has to share. Believe in Jesus as Lord and God. In the first 12 chapters, John spends a lot of time helping us understand Jesus' public ministry. His ministry to very many people. And as Jesus had a very public ministry, around about chapter 13, as we enter closer and closer to the events of the cross... Jesus' ministry shifts, changes gear, starts to focus on his disciples. And there are many reasons for this because the disciples recognized that Jesus was actually having a difficult time. He was provoking a very negative response from the Jewish leaders. They didn't like what he had to say. They didn't like his popularity. But the miracles, he couldn't deny them. So they said he's doing them in the power of the devil. They openly rejected him. They resisted him and they wanted to kill him. And many times as you read the text, they tried to lay their hands on him. But they weren't able to do so. One of the reasons was Jesus was so popular with the people. Because of the things that he did. Jesus provoked the wrath of the Jewish leaders. And Jesus started to focus his ministry on his disciples as he started to see on the horizon the cross was coming. The Jewish leaders were trying to kill him and were preparing to do so. So we move into chapter 14 where we're going to be looking this evening. And Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. 
and he's spending time with them and they've been watching Jesus. They've been watching Jesus and hearing things that he's had to say, not completely grasping or understanding when Jesus is talking about his death. They don't know how to embrace this or understand this. I mean, how does this really make sense? And so Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples and he starts to say things which is even worse and more difficult for these disciples. He says, listen, one of you is going to deny me. They can't believe this. We're part of your group. We're with you. We'd never do that. Turns to Peter. Peter, I mean, Peter was one of the prominent ones right there through thick and thin. Peter, you're going to deny me. Peter said, no, Lord. I'd do anything. I'd die for you. And as he looked on Jesus, and Jesus started to take on board the full understanding of what was in store. If you're to look in Luke's account, Luke who was a doctor, Luke's account of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus was praying before his arrest, before his crucifixion, and he sweat droplets of blood. What we know now, a physical reaction to just the most extreme anguish and stress. So as Jesus is in the upper room, you can imagine the disciples deny him. How? How could it be possible? They're looking at Jesus and they're sensing the atmosphere. Betray him? Never. Jesus, what are you saying? You could cut the tension with a knife. You can imagine the fear gripping the hearts of the disciples. Well, Jesus' words are to respond to that situation. He says words designed to comfort and encourage them. Whatever is happening in your life right now, If you're dealing with a fearful situation, and I'm sure many people are, Jesus' words to the disciples 2,000 years ago are as equally applicable to your life today. Jesus said this. We're going to read the first seven verses of chapter 14. Jesus turned to his disciples. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going? Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus' words to his disciples, to encourage them, to comfort them. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. He knew they were troubled. He knew they were anxious. He knew that fear was gripping them because of the circumstances and the difficulty of the situation, despite their confusion. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Why? Trust in God. Trust also in me. Demonstration of the deity of Christ, which is very concurrent with John's theme throughout the gospel, where the disciples are to trust in God. Equally, they're to trust in Jesus. You know, sometimes we can just read this so quickly, we miss the significance, the parallelism here. Jesus is putting himself on a par with the Father. And Jesus is doing something here, which if this is not true, this is blasphemy. You don't put yourself on a par with the Father. You don't do that if you're a person, a human, just an ordinary person. You you don't qualify for that. 
In fact, if you go back earlier in John's Gospel, look in chapter 5, look in chapter 8, look in chapter 10. Jesus makes a similar claim. He puts himself on a par with the Father. And what is the reaction of the Jews? They want to stone him. They want to kill him because it's blasphemy. Jesus made a claim that it was outrageous if it was not true. But if it was true, this was amazing news. This was a wonderful source of hope. To trust in God, to trust in Jesus. Jesus said in chapter 14, to know me is to know the Father. To see me is to see the Father. What an amazing statement about the true nature of Jesus Christ. As chapter 14 unfolds, Jesus says, you know, I'm going to leave you, but I'm going to send another who's going to come. The Holy Spirit is going to be a guide, is going to be a counselor, is going to be one who will help you and seal you and help you to live the way that I want you to, to be a support to you. But the disciples at this point are finding it hard to take in. They're finding this to be a very, very difficult time. So Jesus' words are designed to encourage them by saying, I am the way, I am the truth. I am the life. What is the source of hope in a climate of fear? Atheism? Probably no God. Stop worrying. Enjoy your life. The reality, we take God out of the picture. The world that we see around us, the world that we see within us, leads people to panic, leads people to despair. But we have a message of hope. We bring God back into the equation and find out who Jesus is, his true nature, his true identity. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In plain terms, Jesus is the way to God because he is God. And only in him can we discover life now and for eternity. What a message. What a message of hope. The world has no hope. You scrape it away pretty quickly. Most of the things that the world says, we can have hope in. But Jesus said, you have hope in him. First, Jesus said, I am the way. Jesus himself is the way. Only in him can we find real direction in life. John uses a Greek word here, hodos. It's a very common word, a very common word in the New Testament, which means the way could be translated uh, a journey, a way to travel, a highway. But also, in addition to um, a way to go, it also can mean a way of life, a code of conduct, a way to actually embrace and to try and build your life around. The word has that meaning too. Mark uses the same word when he talks about John the Baptist who came to prepare the way for Jesus. John the Baptist came in fulfillment of prophecy to prepare the way for the one who would come. And he came and he prepared the way. He prepared the hearts and minds of people, preparing them to to be ready to receive and respond and engage the Messiah. We have to recognize Jesus is the way. He's the path that we should follow. But don't just focus on what he said. We need to focus on who he is. Jesus was unique. And distinct from every other religious leader. He didn't just point the way externally. He actually embodied the way personally. Jesus said, I am the way. He is our path to God personally. This is distinct from every other religious system, every other philosophy that tries to advise you on how you should live your life. Others, for example, uh, perhaps uh, Buddhism. Buddha would, would suggest a way you should live your life. These are things that you should do. And he was just one of us trying to find his way and trying to share the benefit of his experience. Other religions are the same. To say, listen, okay, this is maybe somewhere where you need to go. And here's a set of instructions and do the best you can to follow them. And off you go on your way and see if you make it. Jesus did not point the way externally. He said, no, I am the way. 
I am the way. I am the key to this. Radically different from every other religious system. Some people say sometimes, you know, well, all religions, you know, ultimately, aren't they really just the same? They've got different names, you know, different flavors. But, you know, you kind of dig down deep and, you know, at the heart of the issue, they're all the same. Well, that's a response out of ignorance. When you dig deeper and when you scrape away the surface, you see that all religions are radically different. Radically different. Different views about God, different views about the Bible or God's revelation, different views about Jesus, who he was, different views about sin, different views about salvation, different views about heaven, different views about hell. Radically different. Different religions take different trajectories. They go off in very, very different directions. They can't all be true because they contradict one another. And you have to decide what is true, what is true. Buddhism is not about God, it's about personal enlightenment. Hinduism has millions of gods and you must appease those that you choose to adopt. Islam says there is one God but he is transcendent, he's unknowable, he's not personal, you can't have a relationship with him. Judaism argues for one God who's revealed himself in the world primarily to them but also they're still waiting for the Messiah, they've rejected Jesus. And Christianity says there is one God who's revealed himself in the world but ultimately he's revealed himself in the person of his son Jesus Christ. And that God, one God, exists but within three persons where there's a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that God is a personal God who's involved in the affairs of this world. And that you can know him personally through his Son, Jesus Christ. All religions are not the same. Christ said, I am the way. And he also said, I am the truth. I am the truth. If you say something is true, anything that contradicts that, by definition, immediately is false. All religions claim to be the truth. I sometimes come across people who say, you know, Christians, you know, they're so, so narrow, they're so exclusive. Every religion is exclusive. Every religion claims to have the truth. Christianity is no different. But Jesus said, no doubt about it, I am the truth. I am the truth. John uses a Greek word here, aletheia which is a very powerful word which helps us remind, be reminded about the absolute nature of truth. Truth is absolute by definition, but in the culture today we sometimes have to address that because there's a popular notion that truth is relative. Relative truth. You know, it's true for you and it's true for someone else and what's true for you might not be true for me. Relative truth is an oxymoron. Truth is absolute by definition. You cannot relativize truth. You cannot downgrade truth so it becomes truth, like a burger. I like fries, no fries. Cheese, no cheese. Pickle, no, ch- no pickle. Truth for you, truth for me. No, truth is absolute. You can't change it. You can't make something true by wanting it to be true. You can't make something false by really wanting it to be false. What is true is absolute. Jesus said, I am the truth. I am aletheia. And the word aletheia too has this, this deeper meaning of non-concealment. Jesus said, I am the truth, absolutely, but also I am the truth revealed, made known, accessible, available to people. The truth that is revealed and made known, there for all to see. Matthew uses the word Matthew 22 when 
the Jewish leaders who were always trying to trap Jesus, weren't they? They wanted to try and get him to be a trip up, you know, and to, to try and trick him in certain ways. And do you remember the time with the Pharisees? They sent some people to Jesus and said, listen, oh, you know, flatter him, you know, warm him up a little bit, but then strike him, you know, we'll get him to fall down. And so some people came to Jesus and they said, oh, Jesus, we know that you're a great teacher who teaches the truth. Aletheia, you know, you, you teach the truth, you make it known, and you're not swayed by favoritism. You know, we have a question for you. And they said to Jesus, they said, you know, Jesus, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Can you help us? We're a bit confused about this issue, but oh, great teacher, can you tell us what is the right thing to do? And Jesus saw right through them. He knew where they were at. But Jesus, smartest man who ever lived, this is the son of God. We shouldn't be surprised. He says, listen, uh, let me see a coin. And Jesus is going to pull a master stroke. Because the, the people there, they thought they had him trapped. It's kind of like one of these, you know, that you play the knots and crosses and they think, yeah, it's great because we've positioned things that no matter where he puts it, we've got him. And Jesus said, let me see a coin. And they give him the coin. And whose face is on this coin? Caesar. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. Their mouths closed and they left them pretty quickly. Jesus was a teacher, a teacher of the truth, a truth that was revealed and made known and accessible to people. This overcomes a, a, a popular notion today, certainly inspired by the writing of Dan Brown, The Da Vinci Code, and I've just saw a, a promotion for another of Dan Brown's novels made into a movie again, Tom Hanks and others, squeeze some more money out of it. But they're going to address this issue again, and, and there's this popular notion today, you know, that, well, Jesus, you know, you don't really know who he was or what he said, you know, because they had this kind of holy huddle and they whispered, and, you know, if you're in the gang, you got to hear, if you're not in the club, you didn't know. And this reflects certainly first and second century Gnosticism. There were some groups of people like that. But this was not Christianity. This was not how Jesus and his disciples operated. They came and they shared this message and said, this is true and we're going to make it known and accessible to people. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, We've renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And if you read that chapter, you'll see that some are blinded by the truth, resist the truth. And we know that people respond sometimes, and they are, but that does not mean that we cloak the message. We openly proclaim the message. We don't hide it. And so we make it known it's the truth. Jesus is the truth, the truth revealed. Jesus is the way to God because he is God. He is the truth, absolutely. And what does it mean to be the truth? It means that what you say lines up with reality. You want to know what the world is really like? Listen to Jesus. What he says actually aligns with reality. Helps us understand the real world the way that it is. That is the truth, the truth that is revealed. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth. And lastly, he said, I am the life. I am the life. The word here is a Greek word, zoe. It means the fullness of life. This is a complete antithesis to death. This is life in all its fullness. Jesus said in John 10, 10, I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. This really shatters the myths that so many people have about what it is to live as a Christian. You check out of life. You give up on life. Life's over. Are you going to be a Christian? Jesus said, I'm going to come so that you can experience life the way it was meant to be. Life in its fullness. 
Me walking with you, helping you, supporting you, and encouraging you. Jesus is the life, Zoe. Matthew and Mark use the same word, the same Greek word, when they talk about the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You see, the word can refer to eternity. Eternity is something that every one of us has to be aware of and has to be prepared for. Luke uses a word when Jesus told the story about the rich man in Lazarus, where the rich man had experienced good things in his life on earth. Zoe, same word. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And this word means the life now and the life to come. Christianity is not fire insurance. It's not something that you just do and then file it away for a rainy day. It's engaging life now, the way it was meant to be. And recognizing that you're prepared for eternity. Life now and the life to come. Jesus is the key to both. I like what C.S. Lewis said. He said, you know what, you aim at heaven. You get earth thrown in. Aim at earth. You get neither. You aim at heaven and you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. Where are your priorities tonight? Where is your hope? Where is the anchor of your life? Jesus says it needs to be in him. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. But living as a Christian, and let's be clear about that, does not mean that you suddenly are immune to pain, immune to difficulty. But God will walk with you through the tough times, through the difficult times. Maybe you've heard the story about the group of missionaries in the 50s who went to South America, who went to Ecuador because they wanted to reach a group of people that were unreached, a group of people that never heard about Jesus. And so a group of young men that were spending time to try to reach out and to befriend this group of people. Jamele was one of them. And as they were reaching out and trying to engage these people with the gospel, one day they'd gone down on a beach in Ecuador. And the people responded in a very violent way. And they killed them. These young men, seeking to reach out the goodness of the gospel, were killed, martyred for their faith. If you're familiar with Jim Elliott's wife, Elizabeth Elliott, her book, Through Gates of Splendor, you can hear more. And as you hear more about the story, how she went back, actually still to reach out to these people who'd killed her husband and their friends. And they eventually reached this group of people. And the people who'd killed these missionaries ended up coming to Christ. Amazing story. But Jim Elliott said something very significant. He recognized the risk. He recognized the difficulty. And he said, he has no fool to give what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jim Elliot was prepared. He was appreciating the life that he had, but he wasn't holding on to it with white knuckles. He knew there was more to come. The best was yet to come, reflecting the words of Jesus in Matthew 16. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever is willing to lose his life on account of me will find it, having that eternal perspective. Jesus is a life for now and for eternity. He wants to offer that life to each one of us. What is the meaning of life anyway? This question of hope, what does it mean? The Bible is very clear that the ultimate meaning for life, our purpose is to be reconciled to the God who created us. Reconciled to him in a right relationship with him by trusting in the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. The Bible says that God created us 
Bible says that God created us and that He loves us. But the Bible says also that while God created people, created people to know Him in a right relationship with Him, that relationship became broken. And so that we are born into this separated condition today. And the purpose of life is to get reconnected to God. Be reconciled to Him. And the problem is there's nothing that we can do to earn or deserve that. But God says, you know what? I've done something for you. I've sent my son Jesus into the world. And he was willing to give his life for everyone. To pay the price for all the things that they've done wrong that would separate them from God. When Jesus went to the cross, he paid your price. He paid my price. He was our substitute. The price has been paid. The Christian message is one of hope. Because all that would separate us from God has been paid for. So that if we come to God humbly and we say, God, forgive me, please. I believe that Jesus has died for me. God will forgive us and restore us into that relationship with him that begins now and lasts for all eternity. What is hope in this world? This world has no hope. But Jesus is our only hope. Jesus' words were given to comfort and encourage his Christians. Not just things that were warm and fuzzy, but things that actually were spoken straight from the mouth of God. Helping us adjust our perspective in line with reality. Jesus is the way. He is the only way to God because he is God. Jesus is the truth, the absolute truth. Lines up with reality and truth is made known, visible and available to us. Jesus is the life. Now. Life now in its fullness. And life for eternity. What a message that we have in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have hope. We're not just the outcome of an an accidental collocation of atoms. We're created by a God who made the universe and who loves us. And who longs for us to respond to him. That decision that each one of us has to consider. The world can provoke fear. But Christ gives us hope. And when you have that relationship with him, you experience peace in the depths of your soul. If you're a Christian here tonight, I hope you realize that out there, many people around you, they don't have this hope. And they're looking for it in all the wrong places. And God wants to use you and he wants to use me to reflect this reality to people around us, to share this message of hope to people who desperately need it. God sovereignly chose to use us to be his spokespeople. If you're sitting here tonight and you haven't trusted in Christ, the Bible says there's nowhere else you can go. Nowhere else you can go. John chapter 6 is a wonderful episode where Jesus has been teaching. And he'd been teaching prior to this and he fed the 5,000, more than 5,000. And people responded. He thought, this is great. This is wonderful, Jesus. We're going to follow you. I've got a full stomach. This is good. Then his teaching started to get difficult. And people started to drift away. And Jesus turned to his disciples, those closest to him, and said, Are you going to leave me too? Peter responded, Lord, where can we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. The world has no hope. Jesus offers us the only hope. If we're willing to submit to him, turn to him and ask God for forgiveness, forgiveness. And believe on him that he has died for us, that he's paid the price. And that when he rose again from the dead, he offers us life because he's conquered death. So that even when we die, we go to be with him. 
the wonderful hope of the Christian message. Well, how are we going to respond to that message? I already mentioned about C.S. Lewis tonight. Great Christian thinker, apologist in the last century. C.S. Lewis said, you know what? There's only two kinds of people in the world. Boil it down. Only two kinds of people in the world. Those who bow the knee to God and say, thy will be done. And those who refuse to bow the knee to God and to whom God says, thy will be done. You choose to resist Jesus. God will let you have your way. He doesn't want that to happen. He doesn't want that to happen. And if you're not a Christian tonight, God wants to say this. Listen, I've done everything necessary, everything possible to prepare the way for you to respond to me. My son came into the world and died for you. He's paid the price. What's left for you to humbly respond and trust in him? That decision. I trust there's some tonight have maybe never made that decision before. That is a monumental decision. It will impact your life from today, tomorrow, and into eternity where God will get to work in your life in a way that he's never been able to work in your life before. To experience life in its fullness, that God's peace and direction, support and encouragement with you as you live your life. But eternity also will be secure. But it's a decision, a decision you will make. Just before we close, I'm going to play a little piece of music here that I'd like you to reflect on the words. People today apparently are using a song increasingly to be played at their funerals. When I heard about this, and I haven't checked this, so I don't know if this is entirely accurate, as as popular as it may be or may not be, but it certainly captured something that I see with people that I engage with in our culture today. People increasingly, apparently, are playing Frank Sinatra, his song, My Way. And apparently, uh, as that is being played at these funerals and what it captures, it captures the essence of the decision that we make and for some who will choose to resist and do things their own way. And so just before we close... I'd like just to listen to a piece of this music. For many people in our culture today, that is their anthem. That is their legacy. They chose to resist what God offered them as a gift, to do it their way. And I trust if there's anyone here tonight, you recognize the choice that you can make. To live life your own way, to sign off, like Sinatra sang my way. God doesn't want that. God doesn't want that. And I'll finish with this. When I was in Romania last year, I saw something that really struck me. I was taking a walk outside a Bible college where I was doing some teaching, and I saw um, a graveyard. It caught my attention just as I walked by, and I, I walked in, and I've, a couple of times I've done this before, just looking at the names and just trying to imagine these are lives lived. But in Romania, something distinct from a Scottish graveyard is when you go in, you'll see pictures almost on every headstone of the individuals, those whose lives are now over. 
And then something else caught my attention because I recognized that some of these headstones, they had dates chiseled in. And so even without knowing the language, I was able to identify the ages of different people. But then I saw some and I thought almost at first there's been a mistake here. Because there was a one date in the past, but there was no second date. And at first I thought, well, I wonder if maybe they, they didn't know when this person had died or, you know, maybe something had happened. But then I saw the frequency of these and I saw that the dates were relatively recent, which struck me, which must be the case. And maybe some of the remaining people here can confirm this. But I would suggest that these are plots owned by families. And when you're born, what they do is that they chisel your name on the headstone with a date where you were born. And underneath, there's a blank yet to be filled in. What does that blank represent? It represents that one day you're going to die. And the day that you die, that date will be filled in. And it struck me because in Scotland, certainly, and in the Western world, death is something that we don't address. We sweep it under the carpet. In TV and movies, people die, but next week they reappear as a different character. We play video games, someone dies, you press the reset button and off you go again. Death is a reality. It's the only reality that cast our uncertainty that we have, we know to look forward to in life. And the Bible says you need to be prepared for that day. Prepared for that day. Not doing it your own way, but handing over with your life to Jesus Christ. And so I pray that if God has prompted you this evening, that you might recognize that this is something you need to respond, to take care of, to prepare for life now and also for eternity. Let's pray together. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, we want to thank you. We want to thank you for the opportunity to be together. And we recognize the fear that exists in the world. And Lord, I'm sure many here this evening are fearful for a variety of reasons. I pray that the words of Jesus would be words of comfort to those who know Jesus personally, who have trusted in him, and made the reminder that he is with them to support them through the difficult times would be a source of comfort. And Lord, I also want to pray for those here tonight who perhaps know they have not responded to this point, resisted, the message of hope that you have to offer them. May they recognize the choice to live life their own way, that that would be their legacy, or to be willing to take that step of faith, to trust in you, to be brought back into a right relationship with you, part of your family, where you start to work in their life for today, for tomorrow, for eternity. This evening's a window of opportunity for people to respond. Life gets busy, we can forget. But if God has spoken to you this evening, I trust that you would respond. Maybe speak to someone who brought you this evening or come and speak to someone afterwards at the front of the church. But if God has prompted you, may you recognize the need to respond and to embrace the life, death and resurrection of Jesus be brought back into right relationship with him forever. Father, I thank you so much for sending your son, Lord Jesus. We acknowledge you as God. We thank you for living, dying, 
and rising again from the dead. And help us to embrace that message of hope and to take it out into a world without hope. In Jesus' name, amen.